Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! We hear this a lot from stage, but the whole heart behind Man Challenge, right? A couple things. Intimate male relationships, which sounds really awkward to say. Uh, And then secondly, confidence and competence in who Jesus is. That's our heart. And so week one, Mason kind of teed us up that we're going to look at the life of Peter, right? So really prominent figure in the Bible. But if we think about it, he walked with Jesus, was a best friend of Jesus, lived with him. Um was a prominent figure in the early first century Christian church. And over time, we see in his walk, he goes from some cat fisherman on a boat to this huge figure. And so over time, he developed confidence and competence in who Jesus was. So what a great dude for us to go to and look at, to try to glean something off his story to say, okay, I want to learn the same. Um, You know, there's a lot of different versions of Jesus out there today, even a lot of different opinions of who he is. Um... It's kind of like this fire extinguisher type Jesus we might have grown up with who sits over here in the corner and he's there in case of an emergency. And if you need him, you run and grab him. But if everything's all right, you don't really need him. And in fact, it's pretty easy to kind of forget he's even there, you know? There's there's like this servant type genie version of Jesus who's here, you think, to, to grant your wishes. And if you pray the right prayer and hold your mouth just right, he'll give you everything you want. He's kind of here to serve you. There's this idea, a lot of us maybe grew up of this Jesus the judge who's just here to execute his wrath and his judgment because he hates certain groups of people and just wants to send them to hell. Sounds a lot like fire and brimstone maybe. Or kind of like the flip side of that would be this this maybe like hippie, hippie all love and peace Jesus who come as you are, whatever you're into, we're good with. We accept everybody. You don't have to change anything. There's all these different opinions of who Jesus is. And if you're like me, you kind of have to wonder, well, they can't all be right, right? And so we, as we look at this, the life of Peter, we kind of see him go through this transformation of having no clue who this cat is to having a pretty, pretty firm opinion, right? So it's, it's important as we look at the life of Peter to kind of step back and say, okay, well, what version did he grow up on? So I'm going to read you a couple of verses out of 1 Samuel. And chronologically, I'm backing up about a thousand years before Peter and Jesus show up on the scene, which is kind of crazy, but that's where we've got to start. So at, at this point in time, it's about 1050 BC, so way, way back. Israel is a nation per se in that it's a group of people, but it, it doesn't have a king. It, it doesn't have a setup. A territory that's defended by this army that's led by a king. It doesn't look like that yet. Rather, it's this group of people that God, in his own sovereignty, has appointed a spokesman or a representative for him to kind of communicate to the people where he wants them to go, what he wants them to do. Uh, so you can think of like the story of Exodus. They leave Egypt, and God uses Moses. But really, God's the one that brings the plagues. It's God doing all this along the way. And so at the place where I'm going to read from you guys, or for you guys uh, today, 
Samuel is the guy who's on the scene. He's a, he's a, a judge, a great prophet, and he's kind of getting old in age, but up to this point, he's kind of been the big dog, kind of leading the people of God, telling them what they're supposed to do. So I'm going to read from you, like I said, just a couple verses. Uh, so 1 Samuel 8, 4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. I kind of stirred Samuel's heart, and he's like, hang on. Like, God's the one that's been doing all this for us, and you're saying we want to be like everybody else. Like, you're, you're God's chosen people. You are called to be set apart, but you want to conform and be like what you see all around you. That, so, so he goes to God in, in, in prayer, and here's, here's what God comes back with to Samuel. So in verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And to me, that's so heavy. I mean, never mind the fact that God brought down all these plagues and led them out of Egypt and part at the Red Sea, and they had seen these things literally happen. Never mind any of that. They see what these people over here have, and they're like, that looks pretty good. So God goes on to give Samuel kind of this uh, user's guide, if you will, of what it looks like to have a king as a people. And he, he says, take this back to the people and let them know, flesh this out, what's it look like to have a king? And heads up, it, it's not going to be everything you're dreaming about. And so Samuel unpacks that for him. And in verse 19, here's their response. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So when, when neighboring or maybe even just some new regime coming in, when, when these empires or countries or nations would battle, their kings would ride out before them and sometimes hopefully negotiate a treaty to where nobody had to die. And so they see that happening and they're like, hey, that'd be great if we just had somebody go out for us, then we don't have to fight, we don't have to die. And there's all these rules that we got. I mean, what happens when people don't follow them? We need a police. We need somebody to execute justice and keep things fair and safe. I mean, it would be great if we had a guy we could go to and say, hey, that's our dude. Let him take it. That's what makes sense to us. That, that, that's what we see in this world, right? And so that kind of sets the tone for the people of Israel. And from there, they appoint their first king, Saul, and it just goes from there for the next thousand years. Ups and downs, ups and downs. Good kings, bad kings, different nations and countries come in and pillage and burn, Babylonians, Assyrians, all kinds of people. I mean, it is chaos. And so through all of that, they consistently are getting these prophecies that God's speaking through these men to say, look, I've anointed this king, this prophet, this priest, this judge over you, but there's going to be one coming, the anointed one, the Messiah, this guy downstream, who's going to fix all this. He's going to set up an eternal throne with an eternal reign. All power and authority will be given to him. He'll put his enemies under his feet. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. So no matter what's going on right now, good, bad, or otherwise, there's a dude downstream who's going to come fix all this. And so that's what the people grow up with is this ideology that, hey, when things are terrible, there's going to be a dude come fix this. Like, we'll get our guy at some point. And so as you go through about a thousand years and get all the way up to New Testament, which is where we'll be today, that same heart is with those people, and they've had hundreds of years of just silence waiting on, well, when's this dude going to show up? 
Like, when's this going to happen? So in modern day New Testament, we've got the Romans, the Roman Empire. They're on the scene. They basically control the entire Mediterranean world, right? And they don't really care what you believe, honestly. It, as long as you pay your taxes, don't stir the pot, and are respectful to the emperor, they kind of don't care what you believe in. They're polytheists. They believe in all kinds of gods. Zeus and Hades and all this stuff we, we hear about growing up, that, that's what they believe. And hey, that's fine. Just don't stir the pot and pay, pay your dues, respect the emperor. Because they're like this military power uh, that runs the show. And as long as you're not stepping on their toes there, they don't, they don't really care, right? And so you've got these Jewish people who are kind of under the oppression of the Romans and that they're not in control. They're not running the show, and that's not what they want. And that's where Peter is born. That's what he's born into. This kind of sucks, but there's a dude coming who's going to fix all this and who's going to set our dynasty back up, and we're going to be good to go. So that's where we kind of set the scene to kind of paint the backdrop for where we are today. So if you have your Bibles, or if you use the Bible app, if you will, flip over and open to Mark chapter 8. That's where we're going to be digging today. And as you go to that, just to let you know, we'll start about halfway into it. And in the first half of Mark, what's just happened is Jesus has just fed the 4,000. Do you remember the story? It's the fish and the bread, and he multiplies it, and he feeds this huge group of people, right? It's a crazy miracle. Well, that's actually the second time he's done this. The first time was with 5,000 men, is what Scripture tells us. So you throw in wives and children, and that's a huge group of people. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, we're told in that account that after that event, it says that Jesus, perceiving that the people wanted to take him by force and make him king, he slipped away and went off to the mountains. So you see the same heart of the people. Oh, is this our dude? Is this him? Who's going who's gonna to fix all this? Is this him? Let's grab him and let's make him king. And so you, you can just imagine the buzz around town. Is this the dude? Is this him? Is it just, you can feel it. It's tangible, the excitement, right? And so we're going to start in verse 27 of Mark 8. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So this is kind of like the outskirt area of the region of Caesarea Philippi. This would be at that time more of a, a pagan-dominated area. So you can imagine if, if Jesus has been surrounded by these crowds everywhere he's going, he's finally found an area with some peace and quiet. It's likely that the crowds aren't following him that far north. And it's kind of just him and, his, him and his men, him and his table. And so he, it says, the second half of that verse, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So in, in other words, what's the word on the town, guys? What's the word on the street? What are people saying? Verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others, one of the prophets. Isn't it funny that everybody had an opinion? What, what we don't read here is, well, there's been a lot of fake news going around recently, and maybe, uh, maybe we need to, to seek out some alternative facts and piece some things together to make a really educated guess on who this guy is. No, just instant. People have an opinion, right? And to me, that hits home because 2,000-some years later, right, I, I feel like I'm in that same boat. I'm the first to have an opinion on this, that, the other, you know? And it's interesting to see how the human heart hadn't changed a whole lot in that. And look, if, if we're honest, they say John the Baptist, this revolutionary preacher that the religious elite hated enough to even kill, 
sounds like Jesus, right? Elijah, this, the most powerful prophet from the Old Testament, did mighty, mighty works. Jesus over here speaking to a storm and stopping it. He's walking on water. He tells you to let down your net and you catch more fish than two boats can handle. I mean, who is this cat, right? And so while their guesses seem to be somewhat close, they're not quite accurate, right? So then Jesus turns and gets a little bit more personal. Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? So the incarnate God looks you in the eye and says, who do you say that I am? That's, that's a bold moment. And so, of course, it's our dude Peter jumps right up. No hesitation. I love Peter. Gosh, I love Peter. And Peter answers him, you are the Christ. So contrary to popular belief, Christ is not Jesus's last name, though a lot of us may have grown up feeling that way. The Christ is a title, right? And just a fancy Greek way of saying the Messiah, the anointed one. So the dude that for a thousand years that we've been looking for and pointing downstream to, Peter effectively is saying, it's you. And it's almost like just, you could hear a pin drop. And, and, and I would imagine the other disciples are like, please say yes, please say yes, please say yes. You know? And there's just this tension. And so let's see what Jesus says in response. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Isn't that bizarre? I mean, what a, a climactic moment. Who do people say that I am? Well, there's all these ideas out there. Yeah, they're, they're all wrong. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Right. Now, don't tell anybody. Like, uh, when, I, when I read that at face value, you're like, what the heck? So I, I, there's a handful of reasons for this, I would say. Matt Reagan touched on one last week when he said he alluded to God's timing and his plan. And I definitely affirm that's part of it. I'm going to give you two more reasons. One being a little more practical and one being perhaps a little more purposeful for this text. So practically speaking, like I said, the Romans don't really care what you believe as long as you don't oppose the emperor or stir the pot, right? So if you remember back, Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is being born, and Herod the Great gets word that a king is being born. And he just takes that rumor, that prophecy, serious enough that he kills every single male baby to and under. These guys don't mess around with opposition. Believe whatever you want to believe, but don't challenge our authority, right? So let's say Jesus goes along with these masses, right? Thousands of people that he's feeding. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm the king. And they're like, oh yeah, he's our king. And they start this, what would be viewed as a revolt, an uprising. There's a good chance a bunch of Romans come in and slaughter those Jews. I don't know that that necessarily helps the kingdom. I don't know that that necessarily improves our storyline. Uh, and God and his sovereignty, I think, knows what's best, right? So practically, I would say that's one reason for Jesus saying, hey, don't tell anybody. Uh, but perhaps even more purposefully for, th for this situation, I would say maybe what the masses and maybe even what Peter has in mind about what the Christ is going to do maybe isn't quite what Jesus has in mind. And though he may have the title right, perhaps the plan isn't quite exactly on par with what Jesus is thinking. So let's see what happens. Verse 31, and he, so this is Jesus, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man 
And you can see it's capitalized. This is just another messianic title, kind of like the Christ, the Messiah. It says, He began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. I'm going to pause there in the middle of verse 32. He said this to them plainly. So he's not speaking in parables at this point, right? This isn't some encrypted message that these guys have to work through and figure out. No, it's just him and his boys, and they've gotten away from the hustle and the bustle, and they found some peace and quiet, and he's fleshing this out to them, and he says this to them plainly. And I have to think if I'm Peter, right? And I grew up in that culture with those people, with that being your history. I have to think if I'm Peter, I'm standing over here with just the world's worst case of pretzel brain you've ever heard of. And I'm just like, add the four, carry the one. Like, it, 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 it doesn't add up. I, I, I just said you're the Christ. All, all power and authority is going to be given to you. How is anybody going to reject you? That, that doesn't make any sense, right? Or... You're supposed to put your enemies under your feet. How are you going to suffer? That, that doesn't make any sense. And really, I mean, if you've come and you're going to wipe the Romans out and get them out of the way and reestablish our boundaries and our territory, maybe we can get a bunch of gold and build our temple back up how Solomon had it. And we're going to get this dynasty going. How's that going to work if you're dead? Like that doesn't make any sense, Right? And so Peter finds himself at this, this, this crossroads of his opinion, his plan, his preference, his ideas, his desires, maybe even his own understanding. And it's not lining up with the plainly presented word of God. That's a challenging spot, right? We'll see what he does. Second half, verse 32. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Man, I love Peter. So the language here would suggest that he physically would take him by the arm, pull him aside, and rebuke him, right? So think of like you're in the grocery store and, and your child's misbehaving and you grab him by the arm. That's what Peter just did to Jesus. Like he just said, you're the Christ. You're the dude that everything has been pointing downstream to. And everything cool I just said, you messed it up. So come here and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you how this is going to play out. Right, like the audacity. It, man, I love Peter. I love Peter. So, so at this crossroads, he says, ultimately, I hear what you're saying. That, that doesn't really fit with what, what I'm looking for. That doesn't really fit with what I believe, with what I have in mind, with where I want to go. Um, I, I call you Lord. I call you the Messiah. But functionally, I kind of like my plan better. I know God's supposed to know everything, but practically speaking, I mean, realistically, that sounds good, but I don't think that works so well for me. And so I, I think really effectively what he's saying, you might be God, but really I'm God because I think my plan's better and I have a better way. And I'm bold enough in that belief that I'm going to pull you aside and tell you to your face, let's maybe change that around, right? So let's see how that works out for Peter. Uh, verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, I love that. So it's almost like Jesus is like, okay, all right, let's make sure everybody gets this. And he kind of opens up the stage, right? Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your, minds on the not setting your mind on the things of God, 
but on the things of man. Ouch. Get behind me, Satan, to your face. I mean, that's strong, really. And it's crazy to think, how in the world can Peter go from, you are the Christ, to get behind me, Satan? I mean, we just read, what, five verses or so? Like that. And it, how can you fall that hard that fast? And it's so easy to sit up here on our high horses and laugh about that. And I think, honestly, he can do that the same way we can walk out of a Sunday morning church service on peace, mercy, patience, and then turn around and give some kind of fancy sign language to the first old gal that cuts us off in the parking lot. Right? I mean, I think the same way we can say, this is the word of God, and then go home and just leave it on the nightstand, use it as a paperweight, collect dust in the house, not really value it. Same way we can say that he is the Lord and Savior of my life. He is my Lord. He is the Lord over me. But then say that I, I don't trust him with my resources, with my time, with my relationships. I maybe have a better plan over here. And I think that that's a big part of why we see such relatability in the story of Peter because I don't know about you guys, but there's a lot of times I feel like that's me. And in one breath, I can just nail it. And in the next moment, I can just flop. So functionally, what, what does that crossroads kind of look like for us, right? So the plainly given word of God, and it interjects with something else where it's not lining up with us. I, just a couple examples. So James 1.19. Oh, man, this is a punch in the gut. James 1.19 says that, brothers, all of you, all of us, should be quick to listen. That in itself is enough, right? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. What happens when that comes face to face with, I have a short temper, she pushed my buttons, that's how my dad talked, that's, that's the environment I grew up in, I can't help it, it's been a long day, I didn't mean what I said. It just kind of came out. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? Here's another one. This is great. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee, flee sexual immorality. Get up and run away from it. Versus, hey man, I was on the treadmill first. She put on the yoga pants and got on the Stairmaster in front of me. I'm an innocent bystander. Doesn't count if you're just looking right. I mean, doesn't count. Or it's just a computer screen. Doesn't count. It's not real. She won't know I looked at it. Nobody gets hurt. So when we're at these crossroads like Peter, and this happens all the time in our walk, right? Where we come face to face with the plainly presented word of God, we have a decision to make, right? And don't get me wrong, that can sound a lot like legalism, whole lot. And a lot of us maybe even grew up in that. But try to think about it like this. Uh, you're out in the, in the yard playing ball with your kiddo. The ball rolls out in the street, and you see a car just crushing it coming down the road. Child doesn't see it. And you say, hey, buddy, stop. Does it really matter if your son understands why you said that? 
does it really matter if he agrees with it or if in his opinion he thinks that's what's best for him? Or in you being a loving father, knowing what's for his, his real eternal good, isn't that a little bit different than legalism? Isn't that a little bit more like just love? And, and maybe if God's ways are higher than our ways and thoughts really are higher than our thoughts, maybe in moments where we don't fully understand, we can just trust him. Maybe. And, and I think even scripture addresses that. Like I said to Burke about Romans, that I love that. I love that consistently scripture addresses the things that I struggle with, right? So Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It's awesome. So we went through this passage. Let's kind of circle back around and say, well, what can we conclude? Who is this Jesus that Peter came face to face with, right? Who, who is this biblical, historical, the real Jesus? How can we describe him? So I think quite confidently we can conclude that this Jesus in Scripture, the real Jesus, is more concerned with our obedience than our opinions. I think if we think back to week one, right, Kyle was talking about letting down the nets, Luke chapter 5. Peter had been fishing all night. He, he was a fisherman by trade. His family owned the fishing business. Jesus is this supposed son of a carpenter. And he rolls up after Peter's been fishing all night and says, hey, why don't you let down your nets on the other side? That makes no sense. But what did Peter do in that, in that situation? He said, because you say so. And what happened? Changed his life. Caught more fish than they could carry. And then what did they do? They left it all on the beach and went with Jesus. They found some, something so much better than what they had in mind. I, th I think this Jesus is more concerned with obedience than opinions. I think because you see him live that out. I think quite obviously the popular vote was we want a king right now. Come on, do this thing. And he's over in the mountains by himself on his knees praying. And, and scripture gives us many, many references in Hebrews and all kinds of places about Jesus learning obedience through suffering, Jesus being obedient to death, even death on the cross. And I mean, if this is God who stepped out of time and put on flesh, and if, if he can walk the path of obedience when it's not always easy, a lot of times it's not. If that's his path, isn't that maybe good enough for us too? So I would say Jesus cares more about obedience than opinions. And the other thing I would say... And man, this is so uplifting. Verse 33 is not the last time you hear about Peter. Hey, get behind me, Satan. That's not the last time we hear about Peter. You would think it should be, right? I mean, that is a firm, firm rebuke from Jesus to your face. It doesn't, I don't think it gets much lower than that. I, I, I don't know what maybe rebukes some of you all might have received in your life. You're a bad husband. I want a divorce. You're a lazy worker. We're going to let you go. You're a bad human being. I, I don't want you to be in my life. You're, you're a bad friend. I, I don't know if it gets any lower than Jesus to your face saying, hey, get behind me, Satan. And if that's not the end of his story, I, to me that's such an encouragement that any other rebuke shouldn't be the end of ours. Right? And so... What I love about Peter again here is just that in his mind, it, it's, here's this kingdom. 
here's what I have in mind. And what you're saying doesn't make any sense. How do I get on board with that? And this same guy, this same Peter who's saying, how are you going to suffer and die? How, how, how does that help us? This same Peter would years later pen a letter, First Peter, and he would write this to exiled Christians who were being persecuted all over. And I'll, I'll give you a shot in the dark at what the theme of that letter is. Suffering. And he writes to them and says things more or less along the lines of, when you suffer, you look like Jesus. And I think when he writes things in this letter about suffering and trying to encourage them in that moment, I think he has to think back, oh yeah, I mean, it would be hard to forget, but man, how about that time Jesus called me Satan in my face right after I called him the Christ? And I think he has to think back and he's just so moved by it that he's like, man, guys, don't miss out. It may not make sense. It may not line up with what you have in mind. But Jesus has got something so much better in store for you guys. We just trust him. And, and, and this isn't my opinion. I, I feel that way about Peter because of his words in 1 Peter. Let me read you one verse. So 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So if we shorten that down, it's Christ suffered for our sins to bring us to God. And so see what, back in Mark 8, at that point in time, it's just a snapshot of Peter's life. And for him, he's thinking, my problem is the Romans. My problem is that we, we need an army. We need to reestablish our territory. We need to get all of our stuff back. Like, my, my problem's over here. Jesus, come over here and fix my problem. And he didn't realize the problem wasn't out there. The problem was right here, Right? And so Jesus wasn't concerned with this, this, these things of man, this earthly kingdom. Jesus was here to, to address this eternal problem that Peter had, that we all have. And that of what he wrote in 1 Peter 3.18, that Christ came to redeem us of our sins back to the Father. And so I, I think just in that moment, Peter has to think, man, I blew it. But what a loving God that verse 33 wasn't the end of my story. And so I, I think we can kind of conclude that the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus that Peter came face to face with, is a Jesus who specializes in transforming disappointments into disciples. And not just that, but disciples who make disciples. Because if this cat wasn't disqualified after that, I really don't care what's on your track record. If he can redeem this guy, I would say we're all savable too, right? And so it's such a piece of encouragement to me that Jesus would, would use a dude who would fall that fast. And, and we can kind of lean on that. But I, I think there's such encouragement when we go to his word and we lean on that instead of our own understanding. So look, I, I, I don't know what version, what opinion of Jesus you were taught growing up, maybe what, what, what even version you ascribe to now. Um, or if today's the first time you're re really hearing about Jesus, that's a beautiful thing. But can I just offer up a, a, a man challenge to all of us that this week we'll turn off the television with the speakers, we'll turn off the radio with the opinions, we'll turn off the New York Times best-selling author, 
and, and hey, maybe some of their opinions are spot on, but for the sake of humility, can we just turn it all off this week? And can we just go to his word and see what he says about himself, about who he is? Just in humility to let him speak for himself, and let's just see if we don't come to a crossroads where, where we have to say, okay, I'm either going to be opinionated or I'm under authority. I, I'm going to be obedient to a loving God. I, I think that can be a beautiful moment. I, I would encourage to look at the, the Gospels, or if you want to whittle it down, Matthew 3 through 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says a lot of really plain, straightforward things that it's easy for us to look for loopholes and try to say, well, that's up to interpretation, but it's pretty straightforward. Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. And ultimately, I think Peter would agree to say that it's for our, our eternal good. And so I, I think if we'll just humble ourselves and do that, I think it, it could be incredible to see what the Lord does in our hearts and perhaps gives us eyes to see. Because Peter, Peter had the title right, but the plan maybe he missed, the, the root problem he, he overlooked. And I think we all have the tendency to do that too, but I think if we'll, we'll trust the Lord and let him speak for himself, I think it, it can change lives, fellas. It, it changed Peter. So, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity of your word. I thank you for being love, being truth. I thank you that we serve a father who loves us, who gives good gifts, who cares for us. And God, in our moments, when we're at these crossroads, which we come to on a daily basis... God, when we're in those moments, will you give us the strength to be obedient? And when it's your will, will you grant us the understanding to see the why? And I, I know that you won't always do that and that we will ultimately have to trust you the way any child trusts a loving parent. But God, would you grant us the strength and the wisdom to be obedient to you that we might be made into a new creation like you did for Peter? That despite our disqualifications and our disappointments, God, would you just fill us with faith that we can trust you to, to make us new creations, to be ambassadors for Christ, and ultimately, God, to glorify you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.